lift up this time to you, and we just thank you for uh, your grace um, through the scriptures, God, that you try to prepare us, you try to get us ready, Lord, for what's inevitably going to happen. And we just pray we wouldn't take the words uh, that you speak lightly, that we would take them seriously, because we know you're speaking them to us because you love us and you want us to be ready, Lord. So please fill us with your spirit. Pray that your spirit would teach each and every one of us that you would speak to us, Lord, and it just wouldn't uh, go through one ear and out the other, but it would uh, land on the heart and change our lives, Lord. So we love you in your name. Amen. All right. Uh, To build you up, if you haven't been here, um, you might, I don't do this a lot, but if you haven't been here the last few weeks, you might want to grab one of the CDs or a few of the CDs or or listen online Um, because a lot of this stuff we're talking about, end time stuff, there's a lot of information and we've covered a lot of different things. So uh, now we'll be in Matthew chapter 25, but just so you could catch up and it might help you understand what I'm communicating today if you go back and listen uh, to some of those messages that we've recently gone through, specifically starting with the Matthew 24 uh, message where we got in the beginning of that. Uh, to catch you up to speed, uh, we... Jesus is, is kind of communicating a similar theme. Now, it starts back in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus goes through what's referred to as the Pharisee woes. He tells the followers of himself, the disciples and the multitudes, what not to be. Don't be a Pharisee. But then, about halfway through that text, about halfway through that chapter, it seems that he starts addressing the Pharisees and actually speaking to them. He says, woe to you Pharisees. So what he was speaking uh, in general wasn't just their character flaws, but that they had a coming judgment, that, that he was going to judge, they were bringing judgment on themselves because of their behavior. So he goes from speaking about judgment to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and then at the end of chapter 23, he sp- speaks about judgment upon Jerusalem. He's speaking of the Israelites, the nation as a whole. Why? He says, for so long I wanted to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you are not willing. You don't want relationship with me, Jesus is saying. So ultimately, uh, if you don't have relationship with me, then you're choosing judgment for yourself. Then he goes from that, the judgment of the Pharisees, the judgment of Jerusalem. Then he talks about the judgment of the temple. Okay, In the very beginning of Matthew chapter 24, he tells us exactly what's going to happen, that no stone will be... Um, uh, every single stone, the whole place, the whole temple will be completely destroyed. Uh, and we see that actually happened in 70 AD. The entire temple was destroyed just as Jesus said. So we can look at that and say, if this happened exactly the way Jesus said it was going to happen, then the rest of the events in Matthew chapter 24 are going to happen the way Jesus said they're going to happen. Okay, uh, so we talked about Matthew chapter 24. Jesus tells us what's going to happen in the end. He's specifically speaking to a Jewish audience. Matthew's gospel was written to the Jews, which is important for us to understand. Revelation is specifically for the church. We got to put it all together to understand actually what's going to happen. We communicated some of this the last couple of weeks. So if you have questions about that, feel free to grab one of the CDs. But then Jesus goes in to speak uh, about basically this. In light of our knowledge of the end, how will we respond in the present? Because we know these things are going to happen, what are we going to do right now, today, so that we're prepared? And he continues that theme. He puts a lot of emphasis on that theme. See, in Matthew chapter 25, we'll be in verses 1 to 30. Jesus is going to continue to hammer home this 
point, in light of our future, in light of the future judgment of the world, in light of his second coming, how are we going to get ready? Okay, which brings me to the title of this teaching, Getting Ready for the Master. Getting Ready for the Master. Or more specifically, getting ready for the return of the Master. Didn't want to use too many words. Getting ready for the return of the Master. Okay. Now, in building uh, up to this, uh, we're going to look at two parables. Okay. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13, we're going to look at the parable of the ten virgins. The parable of the ten virgins, okay? Then Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30, we're going to look at the parable of the talents. Now, when you look at the parable of the ten virgins, it's believed that this parable was specifically for the Jews, for the Jewish audience, okay? And I'll tell you why in a little bit. Uh, but we also see the parable of the talents. It's believed to be directed specifically towards the church, Okay, and we'll point that out as well. Regardless, we can learn from both parables. It doesn't mean the first parable isn't applicable to us uh, or the second parable isn't applicable to the Jews. They're both applicable to all of us. Now, the first parable, the parable of the ten virgins, it speaks to us uh, regarding what it means to be spiritually ready. Okay, what it means to be spiritually ready. It answers that question. The parable of the talents, it tells us what it means to be practically ready. Because both are important. We need to be spiritually ready. We need to be practically ready. And we'll talk about both these things. You'll understand as we dive into the text. Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, we see throughout Scripture, if you want to write this down, in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5. Isaiah 62, verse 5, uh, God refers to Himself as a bridegroom. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. God often refers to Himself as a bridegroom. Jesus, if you flip over a couple pages, in Matthew chapter 9, refers to Himself as the bridegroom. Matthew chapter 9, verse 15, He says this, and Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Jesus speaking of himself, even through this title of bridegroom, he's saying, I share a title with God. Why? Because he is God. So when people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Sometimes he does it in very obvious ways with the I am statements. Sometimes he does it in more subtle ways. He's speaking of himself as the bridegroom here in Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. He's making a claim once again to deity. Now, we see the bridegroom in Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. We also see these ten virgins. These ten virgins are bridesmaids. These ten virgins are bridesmaids. This isn't the bride. Jesus isn't coming to, to marry five virgins. We'll see five of them uh, get left out. But the bride isn't mentioned in this text. The bride isn't mentioned in this text. Why? Well, the church is the bride. And as I mentioned before, this is believed to be directed towards the Jew. The bride of Christ and the church are synonymous. We don't see the bride referenced once in this parable. He's talking about brides' mates. Now, this gets kind of interesting and there's a lot to this, uh, but I'll kind of paraphrase. 
Um, now, in a traditional Jewish wedding, uh, basically, you either had the father of the bride and the father of the groom make an agreement, or the groom and the father of the bride would make an agreement. Now, this is where the dowry would be paid. Usually, it was paid in cows. It could be paid with all different kinds of things, but the dowry, dowry was essentially saying, uh, I, I can provide for this woman if you give her to me, okay? Now, Along with the dowry, the payment for the bride, there was a, a formal agreement and even a written agreement uh, regarding this marriage and the commitment of this marriage. Now, after that uh, that that um, commitment got signed, if you will, uh, that both parties agreed, the groom would go to prepare a place for the bride. Okay, He'd go to prepare a place for her. He'd come back around a year later at an hour that she didn't know him and his groomsmen would literally walk through the streets blowing trumpets. The bride knew when the trumpet sounds, here comes the groom and she knew. So when we look at the perils, parallels between uh, the wedding, uh, Jewish traditional wedding and what we see in scripture, it's phenomenal. Remember Jesus in John chapter 14 Verses 1 to 2, John 14, 1 to 2, he says, I go and prepare a place for you as his bride. We're the bride of Christ. That's what he's doing. He's preparing a place for us. When the trumpet sounds, he's going to come back. He's going to grab his bride. Uh, we see that fulfilled through the rapture. Now, there's a lot more in there, uh, but we just don't have time to go through everything. Uh, but it's fascinating when you study uh, traditional Jewish weddings, especially in that time period. Matthew chapter 25, verse 2. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. So we see there's five virgins that were foolish. Why were they foolish? Because they weren't ready, okay? They didn't have the oil. You see five wise virgins, and what was the difference? They were ready. They were expectant. Point number one, wisdom is expectant. Wisdom is expectant. What made them wise is because they were ready. They were expecting the groom to come any moment at any time. In Proverbs chapter 6. In Proverbs chapter 6. Verse 6. It says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Speaking of the foolish virgins who weren't ready they weren't prepared we're going to see they all actually go to sleep the difference is the wise ones went to sleep prepared the foolish ones went to sleep unprepared it's not that it's wrong to sleep but you got to sleep and make sure you're prepared see the difference between the wise virgins and the foolish virgins was what not just that they were ready but they were ready with something specific they were ready with oil in their lamps. Oil throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, speaks of the Holy Spirit. 
Okay, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, it says, But we have this treasure, speaking of the Holy Spirit, in earthen vessels. Our bodies are referred to as earthen vessels, okay? That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. They had vessels that were empty. They had vessels with no oil. It represents someone that's not saved, which we'll get into a little bit more in a moment. But the point of this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, 4, verse 7. We have this treasure, the Holy Spirit, in earthen vessels, our bodies. And the Holy Spirit makes us ready. He, he gets us ready. He prepares us so that we're expectant for the Lord's coming. He gives us the power. He gives us the wisdom to be ready. Okay, Matthew chapter 25, verse 5. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. So again, as I mentioned, we got five wise virgins, five foolish virgins. They're all sleeping. It's not a problem that they're sleeping. It's a problem that there are some five who are sleeping and they're not ready. They don't have oil in their lamps. Do you go to bed prepared for the next day? Do you go to bed ready? Spiritually, practically, any which way. See, laziness and complacency can rob us of more than we would desire for them it's going to rob them of their opportunity to enter into the kingdom do you go to bed ready has the lord ever like knocked on your heart at nighttime and said hey i want you to read right now i want you to get in the word right don't just meditate on the word in the morning but meditate on it as night at night did he ask hey hey i want you to pray I want you to get in the habit of praying before you go to bed. You know, I want you to tell your wife that you love her before you go to bed. I want you to tell her that. I want you to tell your husband that you love him. I want you to tell your children that you love them. The point is, sometimes that Holy Spirit, he knocks on our hearts to get us spiritually prepared. But if we're not listening to what he's saying, we're not going to be ready. It wasn't wrong that they went to sleep. It was wrong that those that went to sleep without the oil were not ready we'll speak a little bit more about this look at verse 6 matthew chapter 25 verse 6 and at midnight a cry was heard behold the bridegroom is coming go out to meet him then all those virgins arose arose and trimmed their lamps and the foolish said to the wise give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out but the wise answered saying no lest there should be uh, not be enough for us and you but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. As I mentioned, oil is the picture of the Holy Spirit. Now, they're all considered bridesmaids, but not all are going to the wedding. See, it's not enough to hang out with the bridal party. Hanging out with a bridal party isn't getting you to the wedding. Meaning, just coming to church and hanging out with people that go to church isn't getting you in the wedding. It's not getting you into the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we'll mention in a moment. It's the oil. It's the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not getting into the wedding. Point number two, the Holy Spirit seals the deal. The Holy Spirit seals the deal. That was the difference. Some had oil, some didn't. 
Now, Jesus, he often often uses the illustration of a wedding, a marriage supper, and referring to the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because there's actually an event that's going to take place at the end of time, referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me show you in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. Revelation 19, 7. It says, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true saints of God. This marriage supper of the lamb is actually going to take place. And we see it appears in Revelation that it's going to take place at the end of the tribulation. As we mentioned in some of the past teachings, rapture is going to happen, then sometime later, short period, long period, we don't know. Uh, Then the seven-year tribulation is going to happen. We'll be with the Lord, and we're going to celebrate this marriage supper of the Lamb. After that, we'll see the Battle of Armageddon. After that, the millennial reign. The point is, The only way to be ready for the bridegroom, the only way to enter into the marriage supper of the Lamb is by the Holy Spirit. See, the church, as I mentioned, is referred to as the bride. And what makes the bride the bride is that she has a relationship with the groom. One of the evidences of that relationship is the Holy Spirit in that person's life. Now, let me show you where we see, amongst other scriptures, in Ephesians chapter 1, We see the Holy Spirit literally sealing the deal in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Okay, connection to trusting the Lord, believing in the gospel. And look what it says. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee that we're entering into the kingdom. Without the Spirit, we ain't getting in. Now, let me explain this a little better. We see the operation of the Spirit in different ways. You see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, uh, but we see a different operation of the Holy Spirit after Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, we would see throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit coming upon people. Okay, it's the Greek word epi, E-P-I. It literally means to come upon in power. Samson, the Holy Spirit would come upon him in power, he'd get strong. Saul, the Holy Spirit would come upon him in power and he would prophesy. Okay, so we see the coming upon of the Holy Spirit is typically connected to operating in the power of the Spirit in specific spiritual gifts for uh, God's specific purposes. Now, you also see this Greek word para, P-A-R-A. Para means with. We see the Holy Spirit has been with the world forever. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Later on, Uh, In John chapter 14, Jesus talks about it more in John 16. Jesus says, the spirit that is with you, para, will be in you. Okay, that's the Greek word en. It means indwelling. So we see the spirit coming upon in power. We see the spirit with the world, world para. And then we see the indwelling spirit. Jesus says there's going to be a new operation of the spirit. The spirit that is with you is going to be in you. And when did that happen? After the resurrection, it says that Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit into them. The Holy Spirit is what seals us for the day of redemption. It literally seals us 
for salvation. Without the Holy Spirit, we're not saved. If we're sealed by the Spirit, we're good. How do we get sealed by the Spirit? It's by believing and by trusting in the bridegroom. It's having a relationship with the groom. Asking him to come into our life. It says, look, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 10. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. Okay, so we see what's separating the people that are in the wedding and what's separating the people that are outside of the wedding was what? A door. Jesus in John chapter 10 says, I am the door. He says, I am the door. I'm the one that is either going to let you in or not let you in. I'm the door to the sheepfold, he says in John chapter 10. Either you go through this door or you don't go through another door, right? Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way except through Jesus Christ. He is the door. You can't go through another door. You can't jump the fence. No, the only way to the wedding is through the door, which is Jesus Christ. Look what happens. Matthew chapter 25, verse 11. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Though the bridesmaids thought they were friends with the bridal party, they even thought they were friends with the groom. Jesus says, you're not my friends. I don't know you. That's a terrifying thing. By the external appearance, we would think, oh, they're part of the bridal party, right? But according to Jesus, he says, I didn't know you. They didn't have the oil. Though they might have thought they were friends with the groom, they weren't truly friends. Their idea of friendship was different than his idea of friendship. Completely different. So much so, he wouldn't let them into his wedding. It's one of those scary verses. We'll have some of uh, some more scary scripture come up. What he says, I say to you, I do not know you. See, just as... A lamp without oil is useless, so too is faith without works. It's dead, right? See, when we look at the Bible in its entirety, it begins to uh, describe to us what kind of faith actually saves. And it's the Greek word pisteo. It literally means to put trust into something, have trust for something. It's not talking about just like, uh, I believe that my car's in the parking lot. Like It's like uh, not just an intellectual thing. That's not what the Bible is talking about. It means putting trust into something. When we put our trust into Jesus, that means we're going to listen to what he tells us to do. If I say to you, say, you're my good friend, and I come to you and I say, hey man, I need some advice about this thing. Uh, I trust you. Will you give me advice? And then you give me advice, and I say, no, I'm not taking it. What does that say? I don't trust you. I don't trust what you're telling me. That's what that's saying. And this is the faith that the Lord is looking for to actually put trust in him, not just to intellectually believe. It says the demons believe and tremble. Their belief doesn't save. Why? Because it's intellectual. They know it, but it's not a saving faith. It's not the trust thing. So these virgins aren't able to come to the wedding because they weren't prepared. They didn't have the oil. They didn't have the 
relationship with the Lord. If they had the oil, that would reflect the right relationship, but uh, apparently it doesn't. Look what happens in verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. He's saying, be ready for this. Be spiritually ready. Make sure you have the Spirit in your life because the cost of not having the oil is going to be very costly. You're not getting into the wedding. Watch, therefore, he says. Now, we'll get into the parable of the talents. Remember, in the uh, parable of the ten virgins, he was telling us what it means to be spiritually ready. You need to have the Spirit in your life. If you don't have the Spirit in your life, there isn't salvation. Evidence of a relationship with uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be evidence of the Spirit in your life. That's the spiritual side. The Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. Now we're going to get into the practical side. What does it look like to have the Spirit in my life? What, what is this going to look like in my life? Okay, let's get into it. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Now this was typical, traditionally, if you had a master over servants and they needed to travel or leave, they would often trust specific servants with specific things, okay? So that his property just wouldn't go under, that it would continue to thrive, that it would continue to prosper, So in this text, this certain man, this certain master, Jesus is referring to himself. And he gives all three servants, or in other words, all of his servants that we hear about, he gives them talents. Now, there's a lot of different debate about how much a talent was. Uh, One thing we need to know was a uh, it was a, a measure of money. Okay, it was a measure of money. Uh, some say that it was as low as a thousand dollars, which is still a significant amount of money. Uh, others say that it was as much uh, as a, a twenty-year wage. Okay, so twenty years worth of of, of yearly salary—that's what they would say. Uh, this talent was. Now, uh, for us to know for sure, you can look at different things. Uh, I don't think we can know for sure. The point isn't how much it was. The point is that it's a lot. Okay, This is a lot of money that he's entrusting to these guys. So somewhere between a thousand and 20 years worth of wages. Uh, somewhere around there. It's a significant amount of money. Now, though Jesus is actually talking about money, this really connects to anything and everything he entrusts to us, which we'll get into in a moment. But one thing I want to point out is that each servant got something. Each man was giving something from one to five talents. Point number three, God gives us all talents. God gives us all talents. He doesn't always give us the same amount of talents or the same talents, which we'll get into in a moment, but he gives us all talents. Don't say, I can't do anything for the Lord. Don't say, I can't do anything for Jesus. I just don't have talents. I just don't have abilities. I just don't have spiritual gifts. That's not true. He's given each and every human being some form of talent, some form of abilities. He's entrusted to us different things. Now, you could be musically inclined. Maybe you're an intellectual. Maybe you're really strong. Maybe you have certain spiritual gifts and you know you have those gifts. Whatever the case may be, we can never use the excuse that I didn't get any talents. That's not true. God's given all of us talents. But it says also, look what it says in verse 15. To 
to each according to his own ability. Okay? He gave them talents based on their ability. See, the Lord often gives us talents based on our ability. Now we know it's all about his ability working through us, but sometimes it's a spiritual maturity thing. You know, I'm not going to entrust the, a baby in the faith with a church, right? Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to, God, speaking of God, like he's not going to uh, give certain people certain things because he gives people things based on their ability if he knows they can be faithful to be good stewards over these things. Now, concerning this, giving talents or spiritual gifts, let's say, uh, based on ability, we can sometimes look at other people and, and covet their talents, right? I'm sure the guy with one talent was like, man, why'd you give that dude five talents? Well, he's going to find out here in a moment. Uh, but, but the truth of the matter is we can look at what God has entrusted to other people. Could be finances, could be spiritual gifts, could be a family, could be friends, could be whatever. We could look at that. I want his talents. I want what he has or I want what she has. But the Lord gives us each talents based on our ability. We always want more until we get more. We always want more until we get more. And then we realize maybe I wasn't ready for all this. The Lord knows exactly what each of us can handle and what we can't handle. And he gives us things based on our ability. He knows what we can handle. He knows when it's too much. And sometimes he'll even go through seasons where you asked for something. It was too much. He told you it was too much. He gave you that too much and then you were overwhelmed. Oh my gosh, I can't. I'm not ready for this. That's the point I'm trying to tell you. He gives according to ability and he doesn't give everyone the same he doesn't give them the same talents he doesn't give everybody the same amount of money the same amount of resources and he doesn't give us all the same spiritual gifts in first corinthians chapter 12 first corinthians chapter 12 verse 11 it says but one and the same spirit works all these things distributing to each one individually as he wills God gives each of us, let's focus on the spiritual gifts. He gives each of us spiritual gifts to edify the body of Christ and to bring glory to his name. If you're not operating in your spiritual gifts, as we'll discuss with this uh, guy with the one talent, then it's really disobedience. It's really saying, God, I, I don't want the gift that you gave me. He's given each of us gifts according to his own will. He gives gifts, he gives talents, he gives abilities based on his will and our ability. Now, we can look at some of these spiritual gifts like worship or, or teaching or prophecy or some of these things that are like out there, like in the spotlight, and we can go, I want those gifts. I want to operate in that thing. But look what the Bible says back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 23, sure, Paul knew the church was thinking this when he wrote this. And he says, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, or these members, these body parts that aren't as effective, or we don't see them out in the spotlight as much, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. There's a greater level of honor, there's a greater level of, of glory for those that operate in the gifts behind the scenes. It's like you look at that, oh, the, everything's like almost flipped upside down as far as the kingdom goes. And we think the thing that like, oh, the pastor or the worship team or this person, they're going to have so much, so much honor. When we get to heaven, it's probably going to be quite the opposite. 
the people that have the greatest measure of glory are probably going to be the ones that nobody's seen. <laughs> the ones that are behind the scenes. You have no idea how many people it takes to make church service happen. So many people and so many people you don't ever see. How do you think the cookies and the coffee get out there? They don't just appear. <laughs> I'm just telling you that right now. We're, who's taking care of your kids, right? <laughs> and we, we look at it. It's probably going to be these guys and, and the people in the nursery that had the greatest measure of glory. He says on these we bestow greater honor. The point is... Sometimes we can look at the guy with five talents and say, I want that, but God gives talents based on our ability, and he gives enough to each of us to operate in what he's called us to. Matthew chapter 25, verse 16. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug it in the ground and hid his Lord's money. So we see the first two guys that were great, given the greatest amount of talents. They took what the Lord entrusted to them and they invested it. They invested it and we see the Lord blessed their investment and they got twice as much uh, as when they first started. Back to verse 18. The guy with one talent, he dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. So this guy was unfaithful. He was unwise with what the Lord entrusted to him. He literally buried it in the ground. Are you burying God's talents in the ground? Has he given you something and you're just burying it? Every gift from God is perfect. Every gift that we receive from the Father of lights, it's perfect. That includes family members, that includes children, that includes friends, that includes jobs, that includes finances, and it includes, once again, spiritual gifts. But are we burying those things in the ground? Meaning, are we doing nothing with them? Yeah, I know God gave me this, but I don't want it. That's really like a slap in the face of the Lord. I don't want the gift that you gave me. I'm just going to bear, I'm going to pretend like I didn't get it. I'm going to pretend like you never gave this to me. It's like slap in the face to Jesus. Look what happens. Matthew chapter 25, verse 19. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you have delivered me, delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now we see a long time went by. Uh, an extended period of time went by. And all that time, these servants had choices to make. For all that, we don't know how long. We just know it's a long time. They had decisions to make. What am I going to do with the, what the Lord entrusted me uh, with me? A, a, am I going to invest these things? Or am I going to bury these things? There was a lot of choices that took place over that time period. But one thing we know for certain, the master came back. He did come back and he will come back. See, in our Christian walk, we can't minimize any choice we make. We can think, well, maybe it's been 2,000 years. Jesus isn't coming back anytime soon. Uh, looking at the times, I, I wouldn't say that for certain. But when we look at these choices that we make, it's daily decisions. It's a compilation of daily decisions. 
And the Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. That's a promise. If you keep making the right choices, you are going to be very good. I promise you, you won't, uh, you won't regret making good choices. As far as Christianity uh, is concerned, it's not like we're going to get to heaven and be like, man, I made all those good choices for nothing. No, all those choices will be rewarded. These men, the faithful men, they were rewarded. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, we know that verse and we hear it a lot and we hope for it a lot. But I don't think we understand the magnitude of God the Father saying to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Because I don't think we think that way. I don't think, I think many of us question, is he going to say, well done, good and faithful servant? I'm not always faithful. I'm not always wise with what God entrusts to me. So despite that... God's grace says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's crazy to think about. Maybe I can give you a practical illustration. Uh, so when I was 12, um, we, uh, we, I was playing in this baseball game. It was playoffs. Uh, and this was like straight out of a movie, okay? The team that we were playing, my dad didn't like their dad. I didn't like their son. They were the number one team. We were the number three team. And it was like, seriously, you should have made a movie out of it. Uh, anyways, my dad says to the whole team before the game, uh, I had a dream that Tanner threw a shutout. I was pitching, uh, and he hit a home run to win the game. Like, talk about pressure, right? Like, yeah, tell me that before. Now I have to live up to this. But it was crazy. So, uh, the game played out. I ended up throwing a no-hitter, and I hit a home run to win the game. Now, my dad, after that, I've never seen him be that excited, that proud of me in his life. And it's one of the best moments of my life. Why? Not because I threw a no-hitter and hit a home run, but because my dad was proud of me. Because he said, not this, well done, good and faithful servant, but awesome job. How much more when God the Father tells us, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't even think we can put words to this. It's going to be like one of the, oh, really? Me? You said well done, good and faithful servant. It's going to hit home like nothing else. There's nothing on earth that can compare to that experience. And he says, enter into my joy. Now, this is something that each and every one of us shall be should be striving for, but the only way it's going to happen is if we're faithful and wise with what the Lord has entrusted to us. Point number four, <clears throat> be faithful and wise with what you've been given. Be faithful and wise with what you've been given. See, this is interesting. The master doesn't come back and say, pay up. Give me my five back or give me my 10 talents. I, I want your money. He wasn't looking for the money. He was looking for the character. He doesn't say anything about the money. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. It wasn't about the material thing. It was about the spiritual thing. It was about the character. That's what the Lord's looking for in each of us, those character qualities. Are you being faithful with what God's given you? Are you being faithful as a father, as a mother, as a husband, as a wife, as a brother, as a friend? Are you being faithful? These are things God entrusted to you. Psalms tells us that everything in this world is God's. It's all God's. The fact that you have it or your name's on it doesn't mean it's yours. It doesn't make it yours. Just because your checking account has your name, like I have Tanner Payne on the checking account, it ain't mine. It's really the Lord's. We can look at, oh, that doesn't really make sense. None of this would have ever existed if it wasn't for God. It's His. 
It's his. So basically, our roles and responsibilities as family members and friends and uh, whatever the case may be, we're being entrusted as stewards. It's not ours. What are we doing with what's God's? It's all the Lord's. Are we being faithful with what God has entrusted to us? When we are, when we're faithful and we invest the things that God's entrusted to us and we do our best with the things that God has entrusted to us, he blesses us, he gives us more. Look what it says, Matthew chapter 25. Verse 23, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. The master wasn't trying to take from them. He was trying to give them more. That was the point. He wasn't saying, give me pay up. He was saying, I want to give you more. You you portrayed the character that I was looking for. I'm going to bless you with even more. When Jesus asks us for something, it's only because he wants to give us more or give us something better. Let me show you. In John chapter 6, this is when Jesus feeds the 5,000. It says in John chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus tells the disciples, you're going to feed these people. <laughs> you're going to take care of them. So we're going, where are we going to get food for this? And look what happens. Verse 9, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. And the disciples to those sitting down. And likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments and remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten see when we put the things that god gives us when we put them back in his hands when we entrust the things that god gives us uh, back to him then the lord can multiply it he can bless us with something so much more now we have to think practically these guys are in the wilderness it's not like they got a place to go get food this young boy that was probably food for his family or maybe that was food that he had for the disciples if they give this food up then they have nothing left is what they would think, and it's what we would think, but not in the Lord's economy. He asks us to give him back things so he can give us more things, or again, better things. This all takes faith. It's steps of faith. It was a step of faith for the little boy. It was a step of faith for the disciples, but the Lord honors, he blesses steps of faith. See, if we want to see the Lord's multiplication in our life, then we got to take action. we got to take action if we want to see the multiplication. The Bible says, uh, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. God's given each of us things, gifts, talents, responsibilities, roles, uh, you name it. But if we do nothing with it, then we might as well just bury those things in the ground because they're, they're dead. They're not going to come to life. Nothing's going to happen with those things. And this applies to all things. As I mentioned, the roles and responsibilities, father, husband, uh, wife, you name it, even son or, or daughter. But there's one thing that God has entrusted to each and every one of us, each and every one, one, of, uh, one of his followers, each and every one of his children. And that's the word of God. Let me show you. In 2 Timothy, 
In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul, speaking to a young pastor, but this applies to each and every one of us, 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, he says, And the things you have heard from me, speaking about the teachings of the word of God, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul's saying, I'm not teaching you just for you, Timothy. I'm teaching you so you would spread these things. The Bible says that God's entrusted us with the oracles of God. Like literally, we're stewards over the Bible. It's something that he's given us. But this thing that he's given us, if it stops with us, then it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. The Bible, the word of God is not supposed to stop with an individual. The whole point is that it spreads Go therefore and make, the, make disciples preach the gospel. All nations spread across the entire world. If the teaching of the word of God is stopping with you, then it's not doing what it's supposed to do. It's not supposed to stop with one person. It's supposed to continue to spread. God's entrusted us with his word and he expects us. Take these things that you've heard and commit them to other faithful men. Spread the word. Imagine... If each and every person from our church just took two people or made in an effort, I'm going to share something from the teachings this week. I'm going to be share something from my devotions or something that I heard on the radio or whatever. And I'm going to make a commitment to share something every week. It would be in no time at all that all of Running Springs at least heard the word of God. They, they heard the teachings of the Bible. But the problem comes, the word stops spreading when it stops with the individual. That's where it stops. And we can look at, well, he's not doing it. Well, she's not doing it. But none of that's important. We're all uh, called to. We've all been entrusted with the word of God so that it might spread. And just as <clears throat> the multitude was affected by uh, one little boy's step of faith, multitudes are affected when we take steps of faith. When, when we walk in obedience to what he's asking us to do, the word of God, again, it's not just for us, it's for everyone. He wants to feed the multitudes with the word of God. But again, if we're not sharing it, the people aren't getting fed. The multitudes will starve spiritually. Matthew chapter 25, verse 24. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So we see what prevented this man from investing his talent was fear. He said, I was afraid. Point number five, be led by faith, not bound by fear. Be led by faith, not bound by fear. Where the other stewards were faithful, meaning they took steps of faith. It took faith to invest money. Fear led this man to be bound, led him to do nothing with what God had entrusted to him. Now, I'm sure the wicked servant was probably like, well, if I invest the money here, then I might lose it. Or if I invest it in this stock, not that there were stocks, then I might lose it. And I'm afraid to lose what God entrusted to me, so I'm doing nothing with it at all. And so often in our spiritual lives, we can be bound by fear. Maybe God has given you something 
resources, maybe it's spiritual gifts as we've mentioned, and fear sometimes will lead us to a place where we're not faithful. We'll be handcuffed. Maybe God has given you, let's talk about the spiritual gifts. Maybe he's given you certain spiritual gifts and you know that you have them, but because you're afraid, you're walking like a Christian with handcuffs on. Like you can't move forward. Shackles on your feet. Ball and chain. I can't move forward by faith because I've put these things on my arms and on my legs because I'm afraid to fail. I'm afraid to fail in what God's given me. But don't let your fear of doing the wrong thing prevent you from doing the right thing. And that can happen to us. We can be so afraid of messing up, so afraid of falling short that we never take steps of faith forward. And instead of being led by faith, we're literally shackled by fear and we're not being the sons and daughters of God that we're called to be. This is not the way he would have it. He didn't lose anything. The master didn't lose anything, but he didn't gain anything. And he wasn't looking just not to lose anything. He was looking to gain something. And he's looking to gain something from from each of us. Not for himself, but so that, again, he can give them more. Matthew chapter 25, verse 26. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seeds, so you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. Now, this is one of the reasons that I believe this was directed towards the church. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, we see that uh, an Israelite couldn't charge another Israelite interest. Okay, they couldn't charge him interest, so Jesus telling uh, him, the servant, to, to gain interest off someone, you're not talking about Jewish people, it would only be Gentiles, so he's referring to uh, Gentiles, so this is one of the reasons uh, I believe that, but something I also want to point out is that he doesn't just call, we don't, we don't see that he was only afraid, it says that he was wicked and lazy. Laziness is next to wickedness, and I don't even think we think about that very much. It's not like you think your spiritual complacency is wicked, but the Bible says that it is. When you're spiritually complacent, it's wickedness. Why? Because it's disobedience. It's not just fear that binds us. It's sometimes, I don't feel like doing it. I don't feel like waking up and praying. I don't feel like waking up and reading. I don't feel like going to corporate prayer. I don't feel like going to the baptism. I don't feel like this. Why? Because I'd rather watch football. I'd rather do something else. And I love football. I get it. But the spiritual complacency is next to wickedness. When we choose not to do what we know God's asked us to do because of complacency, he refers to it as, as wickedness. Verse 29. <clears throat> for to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, they're all referred to as servants, but we see the destination of one was different than the destination of the other two. Why? Because of the type of servant he was. He wasn't a faithful servant. He was a fearful servant. He was a wicked servant. He was a lazy servant. Nothing was produced in his life. See, we talked about the, the spiritual side and uh, the, the parable of the ten virgins uh, that were sealed for the day of redemption. For us to truly be deemed believers or uh, the bride, we need to have the Holy Spirit in our life. The evidence of the Holy Spirit in our life 
is going to be through the faithfulness that we express with the things that God has entrusted to us. In other words, it's referred to as fruit. In John chapter 15, we'll get there in a second. Galatians chapter 5 verses 22 to 23 says, uh, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. If the Spirit's in our life, fruit is inevitable. Jesus, along those same lines, in John chapter 15, he says this, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Okay, if we're abiding in the Lord, he's abiding in us. Fruit is inevitable. It is just going to come out of our life. There's going to be love. There's going to be joy. There's going to be peace. There's going to be faithfulness. There's going to be all these things. It says, for without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burnt. So either we're abiding in him and producing fruit or we're not abiding in him and there is no fruit. But for the true servant, for the true bride of Christ, there's got to be fruit. That's where I'll close. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 16, Matthew 7, verse 16, he says, you will know them by their fruits. You will know who they are based on what comes out of their lives we're truly the Lord's bride, if we're truly his servants, there's going to be good fruit that's produced in our lives. That doesn't mean that we're never going to mess up. That's not true for anyone. But it does mean there should be a continual progression, that there should be obvious, evident fruit, bearable, visual fruit in our lives. See, the Lord, through this text, he's helping us define what readiness is. We need to be spiritually ready. We also need to be practically ready. And our readiness is determined by what we do with the resources he's entrusted to us. Whether that's roles, whether that's talents, abilities, spiritual gift, time, effort, energy, you name it. What are we doing with what God's given us? That shows us, not he knows. That shows us if we're truly his servants. He says it so many times. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and I'll I never knew you. Why? Because if you're calling me Lord, that means that you're my servant and my servants do what I ask them to do. They do what I'm telling them to do. The wicked and lazy servant, he did nothing with what God entrusted to him. He was not obedient with what God entrusted to him. So his destination says there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, a reference to hell. When you look at all these things that are coming up in the world, again, I don't think it's a coincidence that we're studying this. Uh, the Lord can come back at Rosh Hashanah or he could come back years from now or thousands of years from now. We have no idea, but the Lord in his sovereignty, he has us go through certain scriptures to prepare us, to get us ready. And all I got to say is, what if? What if he does come back? Rosh Hashanah, the 20th. What if, what if that actually happens? What's he going to say? What's he going to say to you? Is it going to be well done, good and faithful servant? Or is he going to say fearful, wicked, lazy servant, depart from me? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your warnings, God. I don't think there's anyone in this room that wants to be uh, categorized as a, as a wicked and lazy servant. Lord, we, 
We will want you to come back and say, well done, good and faithful servant. God, so I, I pray that if there's anything in anyone's hearts that, that's questioning that, what he's going to say, what are you going to say when you come back? Lord, I pray that they would make themselves right with you, that they would make sure they're in right relationship with you spiritually, and, and that would play out uh, in their lives practically, or that we would all be faithful with the things that you've entrusted to us as uh, as as fathers, as husbands, as wives, as mothers, as children, most importantly, as your children, Lord, that um, you would have no uh, difficulty recognizing those who are yours, and that that would be us. That would be everyone in this room. If there's anything that needs to uh, come out or change, I pray that that would happen before before it's too late, Lord. We love you in your name, Amen. <laughs>